Welcome to the Boston Society of the New Jerusalem's Church on the Hill podcast. If you like it, consider joining us at 140 Bowden Street in Boston for more, or visit us on the web at churchonthehillboston.org. Good morning. The reading today is from Exodus 32, verses 7 to 14. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once, your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored his Lord, the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, It was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. Change your mind and do not bring disaster on, the, on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Reading from Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he is found? When he is found, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp and sweep the house 
and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This reading is from Swedenborg to Christianity. As we go through the early stages of our lives, there are many things that prepare us for the church and introduce us into it. But acts of repentance are the things that actually produce the church within us. Acts of repentance include any and all actions that result in our not willing and consequently not doing evil things that are sins against God. Before repentance, we stand outside regeneration. In that condition, if any thought of eternal salvation sometimes somehow makes its way into us, we at first turn toward it, but soon turn away. That thought does not penetrate us any farther than the outer areas where we have ideas. It then goes into our spoken words and perhaps into a few gestures that go along with those words. When the thought of eternal salvation penetrates our will, however, it is truly inside us. The will is a real self because it is where our love dwells. Our thoughts are outside us unless they come from our will, in which case our will and our thought act as one and together make us who we are. We have two stories today that are stories that I think people know pretty well. The, the person who loses the coin and searches all over to find it, and the lost sheep abandoning the flock to go find the lost sheep. But what's interesting to me is did you notice what started the stories? The Pharisees and Sadducees came up to Jesus and said, who are you eating with? You're eating with sinners. And Jesus responds almost nonsensically. I mean, think about it. What happens if I would walk up to you and ask you a question and you just launched into stories that really had nothing to do about eating? If I walked up and said, hey, Matthew, who are you eating with? And you went, well, once there was a person who lost some sheep. I mean, Matthew, come on, get to the point. This is an interesting moment because as people who read and study the text, we've we see it differently than I think people would have experienced it. If you actually, Jesus is a pretty frustrating person to be around if you actually look at it. He never answers a question directly. People come up to him and say, Jesus, Jesus, what do I do? And his response is always something that involves a story. It's never a simple yes, no, do this. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus is a curious soul. Now, stepping into uh, modern business language, there are different types of leadership, right? A lot of money goes into studying leadership, and people go and get master's degrees and doctor's degrees in, in leadership, right? 
And people have really spent a long time asking, how do you make people do what you want them to do? Do you know what they've found? The hippest and best form of leadership right now is in not making people do what you want them to do. It's actually working with them and moving together as a group of people who all want to do the same thing. So there's this term out there, and it's called technical problem solving. For a long time in the United States, we did what we called technical problem solving. It's mathematically very easy. A plus B equals C. You have a problem in your life. You identify the problem. You look at the obstacles. And you get something to assist you to get past the obstacle. That's technical problem solving. It's very easy. It's very effective. The biblical law code of the day was technical. If you wanted to have God be nice to you and your ancestors, you follow the laws. You want God's reward, you perform the right sacrifice on the right day, on the right time, with the right people, and you will get God's reward. Now, when I say it like that, a lot of people might go, well, that's, you know, that's old thinking. That's not what the Bible's about. But you know what? My experience is even us great enlightened Christians, we still operate that way, right? We, we have the problem happen. We spend our time praying to God. God, if you'll just do this one thing for me, I'll get through it. Or I need to go to church or else God's going to be upset at me and isn't going to love me. And bad things are going to happen. This sort of Technical problem solving is very easy for our minds to do because, honestly, it's very simple. It makes sense that what you do has a certain reward. The problem is Jesus, Jesus flips that on top of its head. Jesus starts with a much different place. Jesus starts with, God already loves you. You don't need to buy it. God already loves you and wants the best for you. Nothing you do is going to change that. The reason for your good action is not that you are buying God's love. It's not a technical problem. Jesus, the way that Jesus responds... is more complicated. Jesus looks at problems where there aren't clear variables. The problems that Jesus is responding to are problems that are constantly moving. You can never label down this one problem is the things you get past. Jesus is not talking about what you do. He's talking about how you be. What does it mean to be a disciple? Not what does it mean to do discipleship. There's a difference. Doing is in an action, right? I, I can do something. I can start here. I can walk over here. 
I did something. But what was in my heart when I walked across the church? What's my purpose for being over here? Versus my purpose for being over here. When we do things, the things we do are containers for something else. When we be something, I know that's great English, isn't it? When we be something, when we are acting, our intentions, our reality imbue what it is we do. And that's very difficult if you take into account that we are constantly growing and becoming. We are constantly changing. It is very difficult to say, oh, well, if it's about you being a certain way, you need to do these actions. See the mismatch there? There's a mismatch. In modern leadership, there is a, the term is called adaptive leadership, for anyone who wants to know the big business lingo. Adaptive link leadership is one that isn't about functional problem solving. It's about a constantly adapting and moving situation. Adaptive leadership takes a great deal more work because it involves moving with people. It involves variables that constantly change. Jesus was asked a question, why are you eating with sinners? The question that was being asked was a functional question. Why are you risking your holiness by doing things that you're not supposed to be doing according to a legal code? That's what Jesus was being asked. Jesus' response was not a functional response. Jesus was responding... by talking about what does it mean to be a child of God. When Jesus sat and ate with sinners, do you think that he thought that every one of the people who was distancing themselves from God would instantly put things down and follow him? Here's the funny thing. The people who were actually talking to Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were among the people that Jesus was trying to reach. People who had distanced themselves from God, they were technically pure, but they weren't understanding the real point of being God's people. Jesus responds with stories because one, stories build relationships. When you respond with a story, you respond in such a way that the people can't help but asking themselves where am I in the story? So when Jesus responds by saying, a shepherd lost their sheep, 99 were there, one was gone, the people who hear the story might like, am I the shepherd? Am I one of the 99 sheep? Or am I the sheep who's gone? It's not a simple statement. It allows the person to find where they are in the story, identify with what they need, and have thoughts that aren't simply about this is the right or wrong action. Here is my legal defense. Here is my solution that gets beyond the problem. In the world 
of Jesus' day, the fight was between, are you being a child of God? Or are you doing the things that you were told to do? Is that any different from our day today? Now, we live in a time, I don't know how many realize this, we've had a pretty significant culture change. It used to be understood that to be a citizen of the United States meant that you were Christian. It's generally true. Before the 1950s, uh, the percentage of people who identified as Christian would be in the 90%. And the ones that weren't, well, the ones that weren't, it was okay because we can tolerate that. In our modern world, it's a much different place. The number of people who identify as Christian Anyone have an idea how much? This is kind of fun to always test people on statistics. People talk about the end of the Christian world, or the end of the Christian United States, and they make it sound like Christians are under great threat. Currently, I think it's like 63% of the U.S. population identifies themselves as Christian. Not quite a minority yet. Still a decent group, but much different than 90. It used to be that people would walk into churches and the assumption was that churches would be a place that could offer technical answers to life because all of the other stuff, the culture transmitted was Christian. Well, what do you do Sunday morning? Well, nothing else is open but church, folks. What do you do Sunday morning? Nothing else is open. What are the holidays that your kids get off of school? Only Christian holidays. The entire world revolved around Christian identity in the United States. Now, by the way, I'm not saying this is either good or bad. Just saying what was. The church found it very easy, like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, to have technical things. Well, you know what you need to do to be saved? You need to go to church and you need to sit on a board or committee. Salvation through sitting on the audit committee. The idea of what it meant to be a Christian, honestly, was what it meant to be an American. The fundamental assumption that to be a good citizen of the United States means that you are Christian is gone. The church now has a different question to ask. The church needs to shift from saying, how do I focus your good Christianness into appropriate ways for our brand of Christianity? Now we have to actually turn around and ask ourselves the bigger question. What does it mean to be Christian at a time when the larger cultural values are not supporting the identity? Now, somebody might sit back and say, I don't have any clue what this has to do with eating with sinners. Maybe not even about lost sheep. So here's my thing. Swedenborg looks at this passage 
And he notes a different spiritual reality that's here. When Swedenborg looks at this passage, he's not actually thinking about the question of, how do I treat myself in relationship to other people? He's asking, how do I understand my own self spiritually? How many of you have some place in you that feels like a lost aspect of yourself? That there's something in your life that you've let get away and haven't gone after. A sheep, for Swedenborg, is symbolic, and for many other people, um, of, of innocence. How many of you have had a loss of innocence and trust in other people? How many of you have had a loss of innocence and trust in your government? How many of you have had a loss of innocence and trust in the church? You know, ministers, by the way, right now, we are dropping in trustability. You should look at our poll numbers. We're horrible. Ministers are dropping in the ability for people to trust them. There is a general loss of innocence in our culture. There is a loss of our ability to be trusting of other people. A lot of people are really... I was floored. I had a, I had a birthday party yesterday for somebody related to me. A little girl wearing a pink dress back there. For the first time, I was asked if I could bring another kid home from the party because the parents didn't want to come back. Could you bring our daughter home? That doesn't, they, that, it floored me. And I was like, well, of course we could do that. You, 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 and my thought in my head is like, you'd, you'd trust us driving your daughter? That used to happen all the time. Kids would walk down the street. Here's the thing. We live, believe it or not, in the safest time in history. How many people believe that when I say that? Everyone shakes. Statistically, it's true. Kids are less likely to be kidnapped. You are less likely to be hurt in violent crimes. Well, we're on the rise a little bit, but not significantly. The fact of the matter is, we have had a loss of innocence and trust in the people around us. When you look at the hard data points, when you look at the hard facts, we are not in a world that is going to hell in handbasket of violence, danger, and fear. We're just not. But we don't trust each other. We've, we've lost something. We've lost the ability to trust. That coin, the ability to use money to buy, Swedenborg oftentimes talk about, talks about money as being our power, our energy, our ability to do things. So we might have 99 coins and we lose one and what happens to us? Sometimes we can feel like we've lost all the power in our life, even though our pockets might be full of other coins. We have one thing we can't do and the entire world, anyone ever experienced that? Like, let's say maybe you're driving to church and you're like, oh my gosh, the, the road I take to church is closed. What am I going to do? And your entire morning gets derailed. Anyone ever had that happen? Yeah. One little thing, one little problem, and it derails everything. It confuses you. What Swedenborg is talking about when he talks about these things is this inner spiritual reality that we tend not to look at ourselves with 
the right eye. We tend to not look objectively at who we are. We tend to want to create the own, our own answers for what's going on around us. Our emotional attitude, believe it or not, colors a lot of stuff. Depending on how we're emotionally feeling in a certain day, a person's comment to you can be taken in many different ways. Anyone ever experienced that? Where either you're in a foul mood and someone says something to you and you snap at them and you're like, whoa, whoa, I didn't mean that. Or maybe you say something to someone and they snap at you because they weren't in a good emotional place. It can be so easy for us to be a good disciple, to be a person who is moved towards growing and loving with God. It is not always an easy answer of today I'm going to wake up and I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to do a prayer of this length, I'm going to go to church on Sunday and I'm going to go and sit home. It's not always that easy. In fact, I'd say it rarely is. To be a good disciple means that you are in a constant debate within yourself. And I don't mean like a problematic debate that you spend up all night not sleeping or anything like that. But I mean, you're listening to what the people around you are saying. You are listening, hopefully in some way, to hear messages that you may not normally listen to. It's not as simple as, today I followed the law. It's a question of what are the things that captivate you, that distract you, that move you away from the simple truths of reality that God loves you. What are the things that make it so you snap at other people? Adaptive leadership is about dialoguing with lots of different sources. It's about looking at what is the environment around a person? What are the cultural influences? What are the various aspects? And instead of saying, I know the truth, I know the direction, and I know the action, which is technical, it's being willing to say, I want to understand what is around me more. This is the shepherd looking for the sheep. This is the woman looking for the coin. It's a person who is brave enough and strong enough to be willing to look. And so often we are not willing to look. So often we simply draw up, we draw a blind, draw a line, raise a shield, build a wall. What are all the other good things you can say? Put up barricades, especially blue ones that say do not drive up Beacon Hill. Sorry, still emotionally traumatized. All the time, rather than willing to say, I hit a point here where I am having an emotional response, so I'm, gonna, I'm going to arm myself for battle. Rather than doing that, we, the good disciples should be sitting there and saying, the answer is not a technical answer. It's an adaptive one. I need to listen to what's going on around me. I need to try and understand and respect what are the reasons for the roadblocks. 
What are the reasons for the shield? Why on earth would this person who doesn't know me be so mad at me? And what's my role in trying to answer that person's question? And I know sometimes it sounds like an insult, but I'm going to say when someone's really mad at you, there's a question behind there. Why am I not good enough? Why don't you like me? Why do you think you're better than me? Why do I think I'm better than you? Emotions that come out in a flurry and flood are based in multiple emotions colliding. There are moments where rather than girding up for battle, we should be softening ourselves. Rather than saying, I have the right answer, we should tell a story. You see, people all the time want technical answers to problems. We want things to be very easy. We want to make it so we know we are doing the right things. And guess what? If what you're wanting is for God to look at you and say you are perfect and you are wonderful, it's already happened. Nothing you can do will transform the fact that God created you the way you are. But now what are you going to do? The season up till Christmas is now focusing on discipleship. How will you imbue the actions of a loving God to the neighbors around you? And I'm asking you every time that you start to feel the emotions bubble up, every time you feel the problems of the world crashing in around you, rather than put up your barricades, try and find a story. A story about finding God's love in your heart, in the life, and in the person you are working with. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Boston Society of the New Jerusalem's Church on the Hill podcast. If you liked what you hear, consider joining us at 140 Bowdoin Street, Boston, for more. Or visit us on the web at churchonthehillboston.org.